Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. This is your host, Laura Hersher, and I'm here today with Marianne Campion, co-director of the Genetic Counseling Program at Stanford. The Greenwood Diagnostic Laboratories of the Greenwood Genetic Center have been giving greater care through quality laboratory services for over 40 years. Greenwood helps patients and families solve their diagnostic odysseys through state-of-the-art, comprehensive, molecular, biochemical, and cytogenetic testing. Learn more at www.ggc.org. Hi, Marianne. Hi, Laura. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So, Marianne, if I had a dollar for every time I've been in a meeting or a symposium or a think tank or whatever it is, and somebody not in our field said, you know, what we need is more genetic counselors. Um, like it's like, <laughs> like it's yeah. like a it's like a woke doctor thing to say. Like it's like that the mm-hmm. woke doctors say we need more genetic counselors, but they always say it like you could go to Walmart and pick up a few, mm-hmm. and um, and you can't. Isn't that right, Marianne? Don't you think that that's not true? Yes, that is correct. And I think that is exactly what people were thinking five or six years ago when that Dobson and Devonzo workforce report came out. And so much has changed since then. And yet that's still the message you hear all the time. So, so tell us about the, what the report was. Sure. So NSGC and the other sister organizations commissioned a group called Dobson and Devonzo to do an external review of the workforce to try to figure out were we really in a workforce shortage because there were anecdotes and growing anecdotes that we didn't have enough genetic counselors to serve the patient population that was needed. And so they did their review and the summary of that was that we were indeed in a workforce shortage of genetic counselors working in direct patient care and that given the current and anticipated training slots, we wouldn't reach Um, the level of appropriate provider-to-patient ratio until 2023. So that that year and that number got put out there into the world, and it's been really hard to um, correct that information as new data has come in. Well, what's the new data? Why do we need to correct it? Sure. So we've seen rapid expansion in the number and size of training programs in the last decade. In fact, the number of training programs has doubled. So we now have 45 accredited programs in North America. And just since 2012, the number of enrolled students per cohort has increased almost 50%. So we're now graduating about 400 students a year. So if you take those two statistics and add them into the formula, the equation that the Dobson and Devonzo group was working on, then it suggests that we are reaching saturation much sooner than we anticipated. And we may actually already be there now. But, the but, other but piece can, that, I, can I just like push back on that a little bit? Because they sure. said that at, at the very recent annual conference. They're like, you mm-hmm. know, we have to push back on this idea that there's a mm-hmm. shortage. But, um, you know, I, there does seem to be a shortage. Like there's mm-hmm. a lot of jobs that aren't filled. And I, I work in, as, as you do, in a training program and our graduates are like snapped up yep. and there's a lot of jobs left unfilled. So my real life sense it is that there is a shortage, but you're saying not really? It, well, it's hard to know. There's, there's no crystal ball and I certainly don't have all the answers. I would say that if there is still a shortage, the bigger issue is access and that we have so many 
patients and clients out there that are unable to get the services they need, if we did a better job of connecting with genetic counselors working remotely or working in other hospitals or institutions that might have shorter wait times, then I think we could provide those services quicker than we currently are. So so even if there is the um, shortage issue remaining, and I, I think if, it, if there is, it is not nearly as great of a shortage as we thought a few years ago, even if that still remains, I think access is the bigger problem. The other thing that we didn't account for when that um, report was issued was at the time we saw a pretty big um, exodus of genetic counselors from direct patient facing roles into non-direct patient care roles. And what we've seen recently is actually a, a movement in the other direction as well that wasn't anticipated and wasn't accounted for. So we are seeing people leaving traditional clinical jobs, but we're also seeing people coming back into traditional clinical because jobs. Because they're coming back into traditional clinics or because they're doing clinical work in laboratories or doing clinical work in other settings? Yeah, both. So I think the NSGC PSS from this past year or this current year said that about 30% of counselors are working remotely. So it's quite a high number. And if we Come account for those... Come be a genetic counselor. We all work from home. It's the yeah. best. Yeah. And, and I believe 90% of those worked remotely because they worked in areas that were geographically separate from their employer. But uh, a large portion that overlapped with that also did it because they had more flexibility coming from their employers. And I think those are two things that are highly appealing to genetic counselors. Well, I mean, let's, let's be honest. So a, a, a large proportion, I don't have the numbers, you might have it, of genetic counselors are women, say, between the ages of 25 mm-hmm. and 40, which yep. as a Venn diagram for overlap of one's typical reproductive years is pretty good, don't you think? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, flexibility is, is a giant bonus. I, I, ho- yep. I heartily approve of that. Um, but, but I hear you. I do think especially the large academic medical centers, the large cities, we still continue to see and feel the pull on the workforce and that genetic counselors are being asked to do more with less. Their the, um, patient volume is, we're, we're currently being asked to see more patients in less time. And so I, I don't know that that is necessarily going to be fixed by having all of the currently open positions filled. I think it also is a matter of internal teams figuring out what are the most efficient workflows what can we do to well, I mean, um, I manage that, our staffing differently? So I have two, two points or two questions that come up out of this. One is um, we're training, we're, we're, we're aggressively trying to train more genetic counselors. And there's, there's two consequences yep. of what you just said. One is that we have an apprenticeship model, right? So yep. it takes genetic counselors to train genetic counselors. And even if they're out there um, right now, uh, we need people in traditional settings for rotations for our genetic counselors to learn how to counsel. Um, so I guess my question as somebody who, to somebody who is at the forefront of like um, education in the field is should we be able to get them cases, should, should they be able to practice in a greater variety of settings? Do we need to adjust the educational model so that people can do rotations where the genetic counselors are? Is that okay? Or do we need to keep it the way we have it? 
Yes, absolutely, 100%. There's probably few questions you could ask me today that I would feel more firmly about my answer. I, I think uh, the programs and ABGC and ACGC are all very quickly trying to play to where the puck is going, and there are a lot of efforts underway to make sure that the training models fit the current landscape of genetic counseling practice. It's never going to happen as quickly as would be ideal, but it is happening. And I feel that your question has been a soapbox of mine for several years, which is what counts as um, appropriate training needs to be expanded. And, And yet, if you look back at the ACGC standards, the way they're currently written, they actually include a lot of purposely vague language to make sure that programs can incorporate the standards in whatever way is best for their institution. So I don't really think that the rate limiting factor has been the language within the standards, although that is changing, and we can talk about that in a minute. I think it's more um, historical precedent and almost urban legend about what counts as um, significant, important training and what does not. So I wholeheartedly feel that programs need to rapidly expand what they consider to be um, integral fieldwork experience for their students. Otherwise, they're not I was in a meeting where it happened to be that there were a number of different directors of training programs, and each of them were saying what was the rate-limiting factor in their rotation mm-hmm. situation. And it was different. Like in one, it was cancer, and in one, it was prenatal, and one, it was adult, or whatever. It was not the same but they right. each had something that they were having trouble getting those cases for their students, and that would was what limited them from growing. Or else there's just sort of, you know, the, well, I mean, we're, we're all experiencing, you know, there's more programs, there's more competitions for limited slots. But I don't think, I don't think it's just that we don't understand the language. I think people are looking at it pretty hard. They, they need to get a certain number of certain cases, and it's hard to guarantee that. Uh, I'll push back on that. So currently the standards say that students have to get a minimum of 50 core cases. And ACGC put out a report this year that said on average they're getting 122. So I think that shows there's a lot more wiggle room than people may realize. And I think that if what we want to do is train students to develop the practice-based competencies by the time they graduate, you can do that in so many rotation experiences beyond the traditional core clinical spaces. So while I do think prenatal and peds and cancer is important, I think all of the specialties are equally uh, important and can contribute a very um, critical piece of those practice-based competencies in the same way that the traditional core rotations can. I also think that training in industry and lab and research and public policy and public health and advocacy can help students develop, develop those competencies. Well, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. You know, we, 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 we do a lot of non-traditional rotations. And, and look, I'm, I, what do I study? I study LC issues in genetics. Like, I'm mm-hmm. all in on public health, all in on um, alternate um, specialties. But they won't get you cases for your logbook. That's like a little song. They won't get you cases for your logbook. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. So the ACGC Standards Committee, which I chair surveyed stakeholders last winter and got a lot of great feedback. And we spent the spring and summer developing proposed new requirements in language. These are currently being reviewed by the ACGC board, and they will either accept or modify as they see fit, and then they'll open it up for public comment in early 2019. And I really encourage 
anyone listening to weigh in on the new language and requirements that will be incorporated, specifically thinking about what counts as an encounter, who counts as a client, and what does a diversity of practice settings look like. I anticipate that there will be a lot in the new proposed standards that will be very appealing to people because it will feel much more inclusive. And I think that's going to be a great place to start. But if anyone wants to make sure that their voice is heard, that's going to be the time and space to do it. Um, so, so to take you, I think what might be a slightly less comfortable, I've just been pitching you like basically T-ball here. <laughs> no, really. It's like, like you obviously, <laughs> bring, which is bring great. This is great. It's like, yeah. So, so here's, here's a question I had. Maybe it's a little harder than the other questions. Cause, um, you know, I, I'm going to put you a little off because you're knowing so much more than me about all this. But um, what about, you know, sometimes I think that we are encouraging people to go into specialization. So let's talk a little bit about that. But I want to think about it is, um, is, is that where the future is? Or is our role in specialty clinics and sort of in, 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 in subspecialties, cardiology, neurology, and so on. Is that an early days effect where the doctors don't know what they're doing with genetic testing? And when genetic testing gets more incorporated into these subspecialties, what's the role going to look like for genetic counselors? So two parts. Let's do first, do you think it is a... Um, uh, permanent or an early days effect? The specialization? Yeah. I, I think we'll continue to see a slice of the pie continue to specialize. I don't envision that ever going away because I think what will be needed in different parts of the country will vary. So the, the depth and breadth of genetic knowledge in New York City may be very different from Montana. And I think we're going to need counselors who can be both generalist and specialist. Also, when I, so I um, teach the genetics course to our physician assistant students at Stanford, and I've taught in dental programs and medical programs in the past as well. And what I hear from those students is they, they want to have a better sense of how to triage, and they want to know when their patients need additional genetic information. But I don't think they want to actually learn a tremendous more themselves because I think they're afraid that will take away from their general practice. So I, I think we will end up with primary care, care providers who are better triagers than we currently have, but mm -hmm. I don't anticipate that they are going to take over a large chunk of the genetics um, education and care that we currently see. And so what, what do you see? So I, I, I feel like as a genetic counseling educator, that we are constantly <laughs> adding more in mm -hmm. and there's really nothing to take out, right? Like there's not mm -hmm. a lot to take out. So um, that's, a, that's a logistical nightmare, right? So um, what, what's the future of specialization? Can we do it within the two years? I think we can. I think if programs continue to ensure that their curriculum is based around those core competencies, then the amount of content from each specialty can remain static as long as what is included is 
uh, a lot of time spent on critical thinking and resourcefulness so that genetic counselors know where to go to get more. So I think if you're graduating today, you need a minimum foundational understanding in prenatal cancer, cardio, neuro, peds, metabolism, et cetera. But whatever that baseline is, I think it's going to be the same in 5, 10, 15 years. It's going to end with where do you go to get your questions answered if this is the field that you are practicing in primarily. So what you're saying, if I understand it correctly, what you're implying is that we're going to stick with what we do now, which is to say you get a baseline of competency across all these specialties, and then the specialization really is earned in your work life, on the job. That's right. Um, mm-hmm. which is, which is really what we do now and that we don't need yep. to formalize that. Is that your, is that your yeah, stand? Exactly. And I do think that, uh, genetic counselors are going to continue to ebb and flow between specialties and between being a specialist versus a generalist. Mm-hmm. And we want them to have the confidence that they can do that with the skill set that they developed while they were in training and then the critical thinking and the resourcefulness that took them into their first job and their second and so forth. So, you know, I have this thought that, um, that as things progress, um, one important role that, that, you know, say you're in cardiology, um, Mm -hmm. right now, genetic counselors bring so much to the table in cardiology because the cardiologists are very unfamiliar with the tests. Mm -hmm. They don't know what to order. They don't know how to interpret them. I presume that the cardiologists will get better and more familiar with genetic testing. Mm-hmm. Um, then two things will fall to the genetic counselors in cardiology, for, for example. One okay. would be complicated histories, the ones that you know, aren't the most straightforward. Yep. And the other is to explain uh, other systemic findings or findings that are related to, so, you know, in cardiology, you might need to look at ApoE4. And so if you're looking at the ApoE gene, then there's all other things that need to be discussed, and that's going to bounce back. So mm-hmm. because of that, and because of genomics, I think everyone's going to need to be a generalist. I just, mm-hmm. I just still think it's the strongest foundation myself, but you're the expert. You mean, tra- you mean trained Training. as a generalist? Yes. yes. Oh, absolutely. I agree 100%. I don't envision we're going to get to a point in my career or yours where students stop learning about the other organ systems just because they think they are going to go into one domain. And to add to what you just said about the two reasons why, or the the two topics that genetic counselors will continue to take charge of, even as the physicians and other primary care providers learn more, I'll add to that is the adaptation. I think we're going to have to make sure that the genetic counselors are there to help the individual come to terms with what the genetic finding means. And it's quite possible that the genetic finding is going to extend beyond the organ system for which they are seeking care. So if you have a cardiogenetic counselor talking to a patient about a gene change that has also been associated with symptoms in neurology or metabolism, then the cardiologist isn't going to want to go there, but the genetic counselor yeah, can. Yeah, and the things, genetic are very, counselor... things are very pleiotropic. And, yep. and that's, I think, yeah, I, I agree. That's what, what I was, was saying. I think it's, um, I, I think to some extent, we're going to go in a circle where mm-hmm. the specialization is going to lead us back to um, a lot of generalist practice. 
Um, yep. I, th- I think, in other words, that we're going to stay a jack of all trades, which I like, I right? Because yeah. I like it. It's just it's just a lot of knowing things. And I think that's part of why it's fun to be a genetic counselor myself is all the knowing things. Um, it allows us to be nimble. And I think we're going to need to do that if our profession is going to continue to evolve. We're going to need to be able to be nimble and flexible very quickly and yes. not have to go back and retrain for that. Nimble jack of all tricks. That's like getting very close to a song. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Jack be nimble. Uh, okay. So, mm-hmm. so, so um, I, one thing I didn't say earlier, adding to Marianne's uh, res, uh, resume uh, is that first of all, you founded the program at BU. Is that right? That's correct. Before you went to Stanford. And so, so uh, how hard is that? How hard is it to start a genetic counseling program? Well, I think it depends on who you're surrounded by. So I, I will say, without a doubt, that was the most satisfying chapter of my career thus far, because it, it was so um, open to possibilities. And I, when I accepted the job, I knew it was quite possible that we would never get the program off the ground. And the fear of failure wasn't nearly as big as the excitement of potential success. So it was, it was worth it just to jump in with both feet. But the other reason I think it actually worked was because I had an amazing team of colleagues, not just at VU, but within the greater Boston area. And they were creative and strategic and energetic, and they came from every facet of the field. So to ask, was it hard? It would have been incredibly hard if I tried to do it on my own. But once I realized that there were a lot of people that wanted to see it happen and knew that it would be good for the Boston genetic counseling community as a whole, mm-hmm. th- then the momentum really took off. No, and no, but we work th- in this field. So everyone who's listening to this, who is a genetic counselor, they all know this. But if you're listening to this podcast because you're interested in genetic counseling, let me just tell you, the the plus of working in this field is everybody is so damn nice and helpful. It's like they mm-hmm. all, they all, I, they all wanted to be in this because they have this need to help thing. And mm-hmm. it's, you, you ask them for like ridiculously huge favors and they're just like, yeah, <laughs> I've never seen a group of people. So it's like, they can't help themselves. They're all like Roger Rabbit, you know, you sort of tap on the yep. wall and they're like, I'm here. <laughs> well, and they, it's amazing. There's this, there's this innate sense of needing to pay it forward and wanting to pay it forward. So I think genetic counselors really see themselves as educators in their heart of hearts. Some may spend more of their time educating patients while others are educating students or healthcare providers or legislators or the lay public. But the idea that at their core, they're an educator trying to ensure that the public understands the implications of genetics means that if you give them the opportunity to be involved in the development of a training program, it, it's just like um, a kid in a candy store. So it, we really benefited from that energy when we were putting the program together. So, um, so this, this, um, this interview is a series of things, you know, Things you didn't know about Marianne Campion that I'm bringing up as we go along. <laughs> the next one, which you may or may not know, is she is the new president-elect of the National Society of Genetic Counselors starting January 1st. So you will be president in the 2020 year? That's right. Yeah. So um, so what's your, what's, what's your fantasy of how that goes? Like what's your, what's your, what's your, what's your dream for that year? Like what do you, That's I, a great question. So I would love to build off 
the momentum we saw at the conference around diversity inclusion. And this is something that when I was on the board as a director at large a couple years ago, was really starting to get legs. And this is an area that I think genetic counselors who have been practicing for a while are going to remain cautiously optimistic because there have been many initiatives out there that have been um, brought to the table with great support and um, fundamental belief that they would succeed, and then they didn't. So everyone is holding their breath a little bit, wondering if it's going to be different this time, and if so, how. But in my heart of hearts, I believe that it is. I believe we're coming at it from some unique angles. So I I hope that that is continuing and is a big part of my 2020 year. It's also not lost on me that it's going to be an election year. And I think... Oh, you went there. I was going to bring that up. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I (laughs) 2020, what does that make you think of in America? Without getting too political, I think the last few years have been very hard on a lot of people for many different reasons. And for genetic counselors as a profession and as individuals. So I'm hoping that we can, as a group, really learn from loss and to think about how the decisions and challenges that we're facing today are similar to what we've faced in the past, what we've learned about ourselves along that journey and how we can use that now. So Mm -hmm. resilience has probably never been more important than it is today. (laughs) There was an amazing um, Harvard Business Review article that came out last year about how our view of resilience is fatally flawed. And I think this fits very well with genetic counselors. So we are, as a field, are very type A, we're organized, we work ourselves into the ground sometimes if we're not careful. And the point of this article was that resilience is actually working hard, then pressing reset and recharging, and then working hard again. But it's not just working hard all the time. So I hope that we can, as a field, guide especially our newer counselors while I want them to remain optimistic, I also want them to be able to recognize that when things don't go according to plan and they feel like they're losing their true north, that they can actually find benefits from feeling blue, from feeling um, frustrated and disappointed. Wow, if there's, there's a benefit from feeling blue, man, I am going to be in great shape any day now. Um, well, let me. So there was an amazing Time Magazine article. I, I will send it to you, but it talks about how when you feel blue, you actually make more deliberate and thoughtful decisions, mm-hmm. and that you should use those times very strategically apparently, to do things like apparently reviewing I, grants. Apparently, my deliberate and thoughtful decision is to eat ice cream. Like, <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's good too. That's what you're saying. Like, okay, I, no. So, so let me let me. Um, I'm real. Uh, very much respect what you're saying and really interested. That's a, that's a great response. Like, um, I, I do think it's, it's hard for NSGC because the truth is like, we want to be genetic counselors for everybody. And Mm -hmm. so NSGC has to be careful. can't take sides exactly, except that politically, some of what's gone on in the political realm really, um, diminishes our ability to provide mm-hmm. medical care for part of the country, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, so it's yep. hard to not see it. It's really, I understand that you, we don't want to be political, and yet we're almost forced to be political because, you know, insurance for part of the country, access to yep. uh, termination services for part of the country. I think yep. 
I think on the table is access to prenatal testing because I yeah. think that's going to be a political issue. And I just wonder if NSGC is going to be too hamstrung by uh, the need to stay clear of politics. So I'm interested to see you going there, really, Marianne, because I feel like in the past that the organization has been very, very nervous. Um, I think they've been strategic. And granted, I'm, I'm not speaking on behalf of the organization at all. But in my time on the board, what I felt was crystal clear was that the political capital that was used needed to be appropriately focused and done so in conjunction with our um, sister and brother organizations within healthcare. And so who, who was being vocal about one topic at one time was orchestrated and planned in a very thoughtful and strategic way with who was being vocal about another topic at a different time. So it is a bit of a, um, a tangled web that we weave, but I think it, if you look at the efforts of healthcare providers at large and how those organizations have worked together, I think it's been fairly successful to date. And I think the strategy and plan is not in any way trying to have NSG say out, stay out of the fray, but rather to position themselves very purposefully about getting into the fray at the right time with the right topics where we can actually make a difference. Okay, well, anytime you want to get in the fray, you are welcome you're, back here on the People is Landed. Like, awesome. We are here for you. Um, yes. So there's one, more thing, there's one more thing that I bet nobody else knows about Marianne Campion, which mm. is that she lives in like a haunted house, and she is here... <laughs> She is here today showing so much, like, like thank you so much for making it, despite the fact that she spent last night with, well, you want to tell the story? <laughs> sure. So uh, we moved here to California just a couple of years ago and bought a house with an in-law suite in the basement for my mom. And we were in the process of building her a kitchen and the drywall guys accidentally sealed her cat into the ceiling. I'm sorry. I'm only yep. laughing because I know the cat is out and okay. Yep. The cat <laughs> is out and alive. The contractor did say that he has never had this happen before. So we're going to take this as our winning some sort of lottery. Mm -hmm. And so now we have um, people over in our house sawing through the ceiling trying to repair everything. And <laughs> so, I'm so I just want to say, like, podcast. how much do I appreciate a guest? who makes it to the taping, despite the fact that there are people sawing a cat out of the ceiling of her house, even as we speak. So That's right. you really, there's really almost nothing more one can ask. <laughs> you know. Thanks, Laura. Yeah, no, thanks for being here, Marianne. It's really great. Absolutely. Well, let me know if you have any other questions. And thanks to the rest of you for joining us on The Beagle Has Landed. Um, go to our website, sign up, subscribe, follow me on Twitter, all that stuff. Bye-bye. The Greenwood Diagnostic Laboratories of the Greenwood Genetic Center have been giving greater care through quality laboratory services for over 40 years. Greenwood helps patients and families solve their diagnostic odysseys through state-of-the-art, comprehensive, molecular, biochemical, and cytogenetic testing. Learn more at www.ggc.org.